We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this, our 53rd episode, we welcome the head of special operations at Dr. Bronner's Magic Soaps, Giro Lasson. He has a new book out called Honor Thy Label, Dr. Bronner's Unconventional Journey to a Clean, Green, and Ethical Supply Chain. Giro is not officially a member of the Bronner family, but he's been instrumental in helping the company realize its ambitious vision for a company that's both environmentally and socially responsible. I'm thrilled to be able to share this conversation with you today, but before we get to that, let's check in with the fine folks at Rodale Institute. Welcome to a monthly segment we're calling Transition Land. It's a collaboration with the Rodale Institute, and we're focusing on helping conventional farmers transition to regenerative organic practices. On this episode, Christy Wendelberger joins us to talk about cover crops, specifically on when to terminate them before planting. Christy, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you, Ben. Well, today I thought we'd go a little bit deeper into cover crops. Specifically, when do you know that it's time to terminate them? Right, so cover crop timing is it's a little complicated. It depends on what your what your goals are, what your cash crop is going to be. You know, I, I think that first you have to think about what the benefit is that you're trying to get from your cover crop. In the beginning, before the cash crop comes in, they provide nutrients into the soil. You know, they they help the microbial community. They do help with water infiltration. But once the cover crop is terminated, depending on how you terminate it, if you roller crimp it, for example, or flail mow it, um, then you're going to leave a residue behind. So you'll leave a thick, hopefully thick layer of residue behind. And when you do that, that changes the micro environment of the soil underneath the residue. And it, it changes the temperature of the soil. It, it changes the moisture capacity of the soil. It changes the nutrients that are readily available to the plants. So if you are going to be terminating a winter crop, like a winter cover crop, like for example, here in the Southeast, we're based in Chattahoochee Hills, Georgia. So in the Southeast here, we we have a warm winter. And um, so we have a good cover crop here. You get lots of biomass. You want about 4,000 pounds per acre of biomass. And when you roller crimp it, you knock it down and it will keep the soil cooler than it would be otherwise if it was bare soil. So when you go to plant your seed, you know, many farmers will plant their seeds based off of soil temperature, not calendar date. And that's because it has to be a certain temperature in order to have good, healthy germination. So in the spring, when you put down your cover crop, you may want to do that a week or two later than you would if it was bare soil in order to put that crop down. But then at the same time, if you have a crop like corn that needs nitrogen in the beginning of its growing phase and then needs a spurt of nitrogen again later in its growing phase, you're going to want to have maybe a combination of cover crops that when you lay it down, it will provide nitrogen in the beginning. And then as it's decomposing and over time, will provide more nitrogen at the end. So really knowing the cash crop you have and when they need their nutrient availability, the most nutrients that that cover crop can provide, knowing that and combining it with the cover crop um, that you're going to be growing is essential to know for termination. And with the cover crop, do you want to see a certain stage of maturity before you turn it over back into the soil? It depends. It depends on what you're going for. If you take, for example, a winter, a winter rye, if you terminate it early, 
then it's going to have a lower um, carbon to nitrogen ratio. And if it has that, then, then that's going to make it more readily available. The, the, it's going to decompose quickly. It's going to, um, and so depending on when you put in your cash crop, it might decompose and disappear before your cash crop is ready to take up that nitrogen. If you wait a little while then and you delay it, then you might be able to create a situation that once you terminate it, that'll make it more readily available for that cash crop to actually take up those nutrients. So, and then also when you terminate it early, you can, um, the residue is gonna decompose more readily and quickly. And so you won't have those longer lasting effects of maintaining soil moisture and keeping the evaporation from happening on the field, um, weed suppression, where if it's an older crop, then that is terminated, there's just more carbon in it. So it's going to last longer on the field, providing more of those benefits. But your cover, your cash crop may not need that. They might need something else. So you have to think about those two combinations. And maybe to clarify for the listeners, we're specifically talking about a no-till system here. Yes. Yes, this is specifically a no-till. Mm -hmm. And if you're, and even if you're going to till it in, the, it's important for termination time is really important to consider because the crop needs to be dry and brittle for it to, for that tillage equipment to be able to handle it, not to gum it up, not to cause problems. So even if you're going to till that cover crop, um, you have to think about, okay, I have to terminate it, let it sit on the, um, the field long enough to become, to be dry enough to be able to, to work it into the soil in a way that will not just mess up your equipment. Okay, so you, you've terminated your cover crops, and say it's time to plant, what does that process look like? I mean, you have a lot of biomass on the ground. What are some techniques that you recommend farmers look into for planting after they've turned the cover crops over? So after, depending on how they do it, if it's if they're tilling it, then they um, would just go about however they would normally plant. You know, whether whether it's with a seed drill or um, or hand planting or how they do it. If you're gonna put it, lay it down, and plant into the residue. There's all there's different techniques and it and it really kind of depends on what you want to do. Some people will they'll use a flame weeder, which will kind of burn, they'll wait for it to be dry. They use a flame weeder and it'll burn a strip open. And within that strip, they can plant, they can plant things. If it depending on the amount of biomass of the cover, they can just seed drill and the type of seed that they're putting in, they can just seed drill right into it. And then there's some, some can use the subplow where it will plow underneath and kind of just open up a space and then um, and then plant into it as they're going along. So it, it again, it'll depend on what you're planting, whether you want it to be seeds or seedlings, um, the size of the seeds and the microenvironment that the seed needs to germinate and establish. For those listeners who didn't hear the last segment that you did on cover crops, could you give us a brief thumbnail sketch of why they're important to an organic no-till system? Yeah, so cover crops are important um, to systems like this because they keep your soil stable. So they prevent erosion by keeping roots in the ground, you prevent erosion. They continue that tunneling system that roots do in the soil, which provides a microenvironment for the microbial community and allows the microbial community to live. The roots will um, exude nutrients into the, the root zone, which also helps the microbial community survive and grow. And um, so so basically they, they maintain moisture, they maintain your nutrients, they increase nutrients in the soil, and they keep your soil from eroding. Well, thanks so much, Christy. You're welcome. Thank you. Christy Wendelberger is the research director for the Rodale Institute Southeast Organic Center in Chattahoochee Hills, Georgia. She's responsible for expanding organic farming practices throughout the Southeast through research, outreach, and education. Learn more about Rodale at rodaleinstitute.org. 
I want to take this moment to introduce our new sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across all online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this. Farmers that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data shows farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. So who doesn't like Dr. Bronner's? The label is iconic and slightly odd, and the soap itself really works. I'm a big fan of the original hemp peppermint Castile soap. The regenerative organic coconut oil is next level, and I've been using the Sal Suds biodegradable cleaner around the house for the last few weeks. Okay, so they make great products. We all know that. But what Giro Lazan's new book shows us is that Dr. Bronner's real genius is that they are creating ethical production methods that are unlike anything being done by other U.S.-based companies. They're not just buying organic ingredients and calling it a day. They're creating their own supply chains from scratch. But forget for a second the inhuman-sounding term supply chains. It's really just another word for the more than 5,000 farmers throughout the world who are using regenerative organic practices and getting paid a fair price for what they produce. It seems like a simple idea, but it is almost unheard of in the world of body care. We don't often feature companies on our program, but I think it's a story you really need to hear. It shows untapped possibilities for how farmers can work together with companies to create a better future, an all-one future. Without any further ado, here's my interview with Giro Lazan. Giro, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me, Ben. I thought we'd begin by exploring the history of Dr. Bronner's. It was founded in 1948 by Emmanuel Bronner and has been family-owned since then. It's known for its iconic, quirky labeling, but there's a lot more to the story than that. It's a complex story and it's somewhat circular, so I, I try to keep a straight line here, make it simple, not glorify. I'm not a member of the family, and that, that makes me well-positioned to talk about a little bit from the outside. I, I really enjoy it because I spent quite a bit of time researching the history to help the Bronners build up their, um, their family archives. So I'll, I'll make it simple. Emanuel Bronner, son of a second-generation German-Jewish soapmaker family, left Germany in 29. Now, this was before the Nazis came to power. And I think the main reason was that he didn't get along with his dad, who was a soapmaker, too. So I think there was largely personal conflicts. But he also had a good nose. And he was a Zionist. And I think he may have seen things come. So he quit, came to the Midwest, lived in Wisconsin, started a consulting company on soap, of course. And then at the same time, though, this is where the activism comes in. He always had an, ex, uh, an activist streak to him. And he fell out or fell in rather with a couple of groups in the U.S. that had, you know, rather lofty goals. It was the brotherhood of, of men that pursued somewhat vague goals, but it was all about really uniting mankind. And a long story short, his parents were killed by the Nazis, right? hugely traumatized and his first wife died. And he, in the end, came to California for a bunch of reasons and fit right in. Started giving speeches on the corners of Pershing Park in Los Angeles. So he became an activist and had been, but continued making his soap. And I guess the 50s, 60s were a good backdrop for him. And he went into the soap business started making the same soap that his parents, his parents' company had made in Heilbronn, Germany, a liquid soap. That's essentially the recipe we're using today. Good liquid soap, good meaning balanced mix of oils. Oils affect the oils that you make soap of. For those who don't know how soap is made, essentially, you take um, fats or oils and alkali, you saponify it, meaning you turn it into soap. But the kind of oil you use has a big impact on the technical performance of the soap. And coconut oil in particular, with its shorter fatty acids, makes our great lather. So coconut oil is by far the largest 
constituent of our soaps, both liquid and the bar soap. And that's the recipe he took with him and started making. And he found out in the late 50s, early 70s, uh, 60s, there were people interested in more visionary stories than listening to Procter & Gamble. And I think he found, a, he found his niche started giving speeches about how to bring humanity together. Uh, he sent the occasional telegram to President Eisenhower and, and told him to get involved in uh, nuclear disarmament. He, he did really unusual things for the time. I saw much of this in the company's archives. It was the letter to Albert Einstein telling Albert to come on board, but Albert really was super busy. He, he, <laughs> didn't, he didn't have much time. And it was, it was just amazing to see his boldness, you know, how he tried to get his message out. So he truly wanted to clean up the world with soap. That rolling through the 60s, the brand became more and more visible and successful. I think the counterculture helped an awful lot. You just can do anything with the soap if you take it to Woodstock, literally speaking. And that's, I think, what happened. So modest success became very well known in the in the natural product sector, co-ops and, and so on. And it, it grew a little beyond that, but it, it was reasonably well recognized, right? And it still is. I meet here, I live in Berkeley, not near the company headquarters. And I keep running into people and once they know what I'm doing, then they say, oh, yes, my parents always used the, the peppermint soap, uh, just things like this. And it's really interesting to see how far this goes This goes back. Nobody has any traumatic experiences to report. So that's, that's very good to know. And um, this is, I think this is really where the activist roots of the company were. And they lasted through the 90s when his son and daughter-in-law, Jim and Trudy took over the company. He himself was blind at the time, Emmanuel was. And he also was, frankly, not the greatest businessman in, in many respects. He was great in offering soaps, but keeping the books wasn't his strength. And when you're blind, that's a tough thing to do anyways. But he worked the phones like, like anyone. And there was a shift then, in the, and it was really in the 90s, that the company laid the foundations for being a super fair and respecting employer as healthcare goes, as far as wages goes, as far as giving people opportunity to grow. It was a, it was a family in, in the, the truest sense. I've met many of the people who were there in the early days. And then in late 90s, early 2000s, Mike and David Brauner, his grandsons, came into the company, took over the management with their mother, who's still the CFO, and then shifted the activism a little bit. And you may know, there is just a wide range of causes we support. And this was initial charity, typical charity, support the local boys and girls clubs, for instance, or deal with disadvantaged parts of the population, some international work, but then it shifted into industrial hemp. And David Brauner is the one who drove this. And this is how David and I met. Right? We, know, we know each other from industrial hemp. Right. I was I was interested to know when you cross paths with the company and the, and the story you do tell in the book is that hemp brought you and the Bronners together. Tell tell that story. So I'm a, a West German 50s boy that always thought there's something wrong on the planet. So I, I became a long haired. I, I wasn't a hippie. They didn't really exist in Germany, but I was politically engaged, uh, left leaning for sure, and studied physics and was interested in applying science to just improve the planets. There was lots of room, so it's anti-nuclear, pro-renewable energy. Didn't want to work in Germany. Left for the US in 86 with my wife to get a doctorate in environmental science and engineering at UCLA. Then worked in environmental consulting for industry for a number of years. Learned a lot about industry. So I, I had large clients mostly, and it helped me change my perspective. I used to think any company is bad, anything more than 10 people. And I, you just learn that that's not the case if you do consult for companies. But at the same time, friends in Germany had started, um, uh, I'd say, re-legalizing industrial hemp. This was across Europe in the mid-90s. And a good friend of mine from physics was at the head of it. So I helped him organize conferences. And then I just fell into hemp, so to speak, and did this here in the United States too. Long story short, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, in its wisdom, tried to ban the sale of Canadian-made hemp foods made from the seeds, just from the seeds of industrial hemp, low THC varieties. And they thought they need to be banned because they're just as bad as heroin, say. And by that time, there was already a pretty nice supply of 
products on the shelves in the US and the DEA just tried to do this the usual rogue way, just overnight, just no public input. And David Bronner at that time was an activist and he said, no, this can't happen. And he just managed to get a, um, allies in the hemp industry together and sued the DEA, which is a crazy thing to do. No, nobody ever wins against the DEA. And we did. And I was, my job was, uh, I was expert witness because I had done a scientific study to look at the impact of eating hemp foods on, on urine tests for marijuana, which was one of the hot items contested by the DEA at the time. And we won all the way up. And hemp seeds and hemp foods in general stayed legal. And that was just the beginning of our relationship. And then I continued doing consulting. I worked in Sri Lanka on a development project, coconut industry, the tsunami hit. We did an impromptu guerrilla style relief project for small businesses on the coast. Dr. Bronner supported this. And afterwards, David said, Gero, come on, let's start making organic and fair trade coconut oil. This is what he was looking for. And that takes us back to Dr. Bronner's, what was their interest? It was the idea that if you use agricultural materials in your products, which you do in natural soaps, you should know that they provide a benefit socially and environmentally where they're made. That was his basic idea. And the indicators of that were to be organic and fair trade certified raw materials. And there was organic coconut oil and palm oil and mint oil, but you bought it from brokers and did not know what you were buying because the brokers sure didn't know the farmers. So they were not transparent and you didn't even know how organic it was either. And that's where David thought, oh, I think we have to set up our own operations. And the first plant we started building was a vertically integrated project with Sri Lankan smallholders to produce the first organic and fair trade coconut oil. And that's what we did. And we had no idea what we were doing, but we, we were really eager to. So I brought in friends and colleagues and had very good partners in Sri Lanka. And we ended up building a, a, a sizable operation with 1,200 farmers and now some 250 employees at a real factory. Right? It's not a boutique store and it supplies not only Dr. Bronner's, but other brands with coconut oil, organic and fair trade coconut oil. And now the first regenerative organic certified coconut oil production in the world. So this is how it started. And we did similar things on palm oil and mint oil and then others. Some of those we own ourselves. Some we work very closely on other main customer and thus have a strong impact on how these projects are running. So the focus on social fairness and on ecological benefits, notably regenerative agriculture, has been there from the very beginning. This was around, this was in 2005 that we got started. As you said, um, Dr. Dr. Bronner's soap is an agricultural product, but I don't think most people think of soap that way. I mean, is soap an unlikely vehicle for driving social and environmental change? Well, that's that's a tricky question. So that, that question wasn't there when Emmanuel Bronner was in business, because at the time, they were no, there were no synthetic soaps yet. And that's what you did, right? You use either animal or plant-based fats and convert them. Now, I think it's it's more the symbolism of the soap that made Emmanuel think of using soap to clean up the planet, right? It's, it's highly symbolic. For the Bronners, that was just what they had, right? This was the, the family business. And they wanted to run that business in a way that provides benefits all around to your employees, to where your raw materials come from and society at large. So it is a little unlikely, but that's what they had. And of course, it, it fits pretty well. It's all agricultural raw materials plus alkali. And then, you know, you just, you just operate along your supply chains and see where you can have an impact. And you may venture out beyond it, such as supporting the use of psychedelics for psychothera uh, psychotherapy, for instance. So it's unlikely. But, you know, then it's, it's no more like, unlikely than using any food items, for instance. Right. But you have, you have to explain to people, yes, this is, these are agricultural, but I think by now most people are aware of it. Few companies make the supply chain the central part of their story. That's often the, the part of the story that's hidden. At, at Dr. Bronner's, it's front and center. And I'm interested 
in understanding more about the process of building supply chains, what the challenges were. Also, I wanted to talk about sort of the inflection point for that decision to start doing that, you know, because you could ask the question, why not just buy wholesale organic materials and leave it at that? But there was a very good reason why the company shifted away from that. Could you talk more about that? I, I think it's the way they went about it from, I think they started around 2000. They started looking at the operation. Emmanuel and his son had passed away. It was up to the kids and their mom to set the pace and the direction. So what are you going to do? You look at what the company does to ensure that your staff welfare programs are functioning. And then you look around. And of course, at the time, I, I was in environmental consulting at the time. Of course, companies start looking at what their environmental impact is. And I, the, the consulting I did, and one reason I fell into hemp is I started finding this a little boring because you, you mostly look at end of pipe treatment issues, right? So you start look, you deal with wastewater and air pollution issues, hazardous waste. So this was, these were the big items in, I was down in Los Angeles. These were the big items in the nineties. And this is all important, right? You want to make sure that there, there is no contamination of your environment, so to speak. But I always found it much more interesting to go to the the other side of the supply chain, which is looking for raw materials. This is what got me and probably David involved or interested in hemp. You start looking for where is the stuff coming from? And that's something that David thought we should do. So you look at where do your raw materials come from? You know, you, you cover community impact and, and staff, and then you start wondering where are the raw materials come from? And so at the time, you would know the, um, the, the NLP program had been implemented by USDA. So certifying agricultural products organic was by then an established process. So this, this was the first idea. And David thought, mm, I think we have to make sure that farm workers are not exposed to pesticides, herbicides, right? That, that was really the main driver in the beginning was the concern about contamination just like with other environmental issues. And it was then that they realized we just don't know whether A, this is the key issue with coconuts and palm fruits and olives, but there could be child labor, there could be lousy prices paid to the farmers, there could be wages paid to processing workers that don't allow them to make a living. So it was just simply for the Browners to think up their supply chain and figure what could be wrong in their supply chains? And I think some of that is driven by their own commitment to their own staff. So those questions were logical. And then by that time, David was already deeply involved in battles with other organic companies who said they were organic, but they were not because there were no standards for body care. And so he just knew there was a lot of label fraud going on, and it made him want to consider third-party verification of both the organic, but also the, the fair claims. And so this is where the idea of organic and fair trade as sort of the baseline came up. And smart smart move overall, I have to say, even in, in hindsight, this, this was the only thing that was available at the time as, as far as external verification of your, of your claims. You know, back when the company decided to move in this direction, this, this wasn't a common approach. Can you put in context how unorthodox this was? It was definitely not for a multi-ingredient body care product. That's exactly what the battle was about, that people had minimal amounts of organic something in like hydrosols, for instance, just water with a little bit of aromas, organic aroma sprinkled. And David just, and, and his family, they just have a, a nick for just being truthful about what they say. Like poor propaganda was was not their their thing. So they looked for, I think they looked for meaning and truthfulness in, in what they did. Many other companies in food, you had to do that, right? If you wanted a product that was labeled, that had the USDA label, you had to put 95% organic in there. And for food, you had no choice if you want organic in body care. You did. You just cheated. 
and I think they're still the same. And so you just looked at this and thought, this isn't nice. I, I don't want to call these products organic if they're not. And you could, they could have done this, right? They could have used minimal amounts of anything and then call it Dr. Bronner's organic. And they couldn't do that. Right? They, and I think that's grandfather. And that's just this, this attitude that whatever the label says has to have you know some some truth to it and like i said in body care like you said this in body care was uncommon in food you had to if you want to call something organic you had to do that and companies did if they believed in organic or if they wanted the competitive advantage of that usda logo you highlight several success stories in the book i'd like for you to talk about some of the relationships the company has developed with farmers throughout the world, what you're doing is as much a social project as it is environmental. That, that's what you have to do when you engage in fair trades. And th there's a couple of provisions in fair trade certification that require to pay a fair price, typically above market. If you buy anything like organic, you pay a premium for it. You do, typically you pick up the cost of all certification. That's actually a no-brainer. And what you do is you establish group certifications, right? There's no individual organic certification for farmers. And it does not make much sense. The small farms are too small. The fees are too high. Plus, don't know whether you're familiar with how group certification in the tropics work. Smallholder groups, essentially, you form an internal control system. All farmers join. And then you, you have a bunch of field officers, agricultural that do extension visits, do internal inspections, provide technical services. And this is a great opportunity to also teach and train farmers. And that we picked up early on in Sri Lanka. So you bring farmers in as business partners. You buy from them coconuts, but you also get them to, to be educated on organic farming. And, and here's the interesting learning experience early on. You know, you, you try to accelerate the process of organic certification. Or there's a conversion period, typically, when you shift from conventional to organic. It's two years or three years, depending on whether it's EU or NLP. And you try to shorten this by looking at who hasn't used agrochemicals. And you look around in Sri Lanka and you realize hardly anybody who grows coconuts uses agrochemicals. The trees, that's very common. And the joke I learned fast about organic coconut production is that most of it is organic by neglect or default because people just don't do anything about their trees. But they also don't provide any care to the trees. They tr don't try to maintain soil fertility. And as a result, their yields really suck. The coconut yields on the trees that I got to see in Sri Lanka were probably a third or so, third to one half of what well-cared-for trees can achieve. And I had the good luck that our first inspector at IMO just said, Gero, I don't think I'm going to let you get away with just doing organic by default. If you really want to engage, you want to start implementing soil fertility programs. And at the simplest, that just means no burning on the land, you collect all of your organic waste, you use it to mulch, you mow regularly, mechanically, etc., And you replant also if you can, because the trees were senile in their 70s and 80s in part. So th this is when I got my first dose of, of realizing that organic is much more than just not spraying. And at the time, nobody here in the US knew this. I, I shouldn't say this, people did. And there's some private standards like Demeter that have always focused on that, but that was not the main topic of discussion in organic. Soil fertility was really not on the horizon. So we learned really early on that you better help farmers to improve soil fertility with natural means. And then we realized, well, this overlaps very nicely with your fair trade mandate because you help farmers increase yields and thus income and margin on their production. And that has become the mantra on all of our projects pretty early on. It, it was for, for me and then the local partners, just uh, it, it showed us the way as the way you have to go. Just not spraying is just boring. And it doesn't, it doesn't lead you anywhere. And it's not a good way to set yourself apart from the, the competition. Definitely not with trees, which oftentimes 
don't have agrochemicals used on them anyways. And so this, this was my, my really, I, I was steeped in that really early on in Sri Lanka, and that has just stayed with us and ultimately led us into regenerative a few years later. In that process, you develop then relationships with farmers, you argue over prices for sure, but training is a big aspect. One, one thing that really helps is if you pay farmers on time or if you pay them at all, right? Which right. isn't always the case because the traders oftentimes are short on cash or they cheat or what. So we established ourselves as trustworthy, good partners. And then we started our fair trade programs. So each customer pays a 10% fair trade premium on the cost of raw materials. And in Sri Lanka, that over time came up to, I think, $250,000 a year. And with that, you can do an awful lot in Sri Lanka if you design it well. So focus was education in poor areas. It was healthcare. It was environmental care. It was staff welfare. And I, I believe those programs just strengthened the relationships with farmers and, and communities. A company that engages this way is still un, is pretty uncommon. And all of our companies have done that. They establish themselves as good, hands-on corporate citizens that buy produce, employ people on, on fair and respectful terms, and then just support communities where there are particular needs. Can't solve all the problems, but you, you can tackle quite a few. So that's really across the board what, what we did in all projects. You, you can't avoid it because you work with smallholders. You buy from them. You engage but you do that in a more constructive, I'd say, open way than you usually, not to say that there wouldn't be conflicts, definitely over prices, arguing with farmers over prices is a global standard, I think. And, and we've sure done that, but it, it's, I think it's part of it. It's just active engagement and then just find a solution that's acceptable to either side. We're gonna hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. We power farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. In this week's Farmer Spotlight, we have Joe Shermer from Dirty Girl Produce down in Santa Cruz, California. We asked Joe what the process of selling online and starting direct deliveries has been like with Barn to Door. Here's what he had to say. Using Barn to Door is next level. I think it's just the direction of where, you know, everything's going. People know about Dirty Girl Produce. Just through social media, people will get a hold of us or even through email sometimes. And they'll say like, how can I get your produce? How can I get it? How can, and I'm like, look, this is what we do. You gotta go to a farmer's market. As soon as we open it up for delivery, all of a sudden there's all these people. And I'm thinking like, okay, all our market customers that are seniors that aren't allowed to go out when COVID first started, we gotta be able to give them food. So we start doing this. There's all these people that were buying from us that we had normally been passing by that now had the opportunity to buy from us. The old model of farmer's markets is like in person, you're coming there, you like the market experience, that's why you choose to be there. Also, maybe you get, you know how to navigate a farmer's market, you know how to get the best produce. But now we're dropping off and there's all these people that we have no way of, you know, we didn't know how to reach them. You know, it's always been like, oh, well, let's try and convince people to come to the farmer's market. Well, yeah, there's only so many people that are gonna do that. There's only so many people that aren't working during the hours of any given farmer's market. I mean, there's lots of reasons why that's not going to work. And, and you know, since we went online, I was like, oh my God, there's so many people that want our produce. But I'm saying that there's just so many more people that are reachable when you have a pickup location and also you offer delivery. There's just a lot, there's a lot more sales opportunity and that's retail sales. It's full retail. I mean, it's just a huge opportunity that we haven't taken up. If you want to hear more from Joe and about his story, go to barn2door.com slash tractor time. Thanks for listening. How many farms would you say contribute to Dr. Browner's products? It, it depends on whether you count those that also supply to third parties. But if you add all up in the projects that we've created, you're looking at, so there's 1,200 in Sri Lanka, 600 Ghana, that makes 1,800. In India, there's 2,000, so that's 3,800. Wow. Some more, another 15. So that's 5,300. And then there's farmers, say, in the West Bank and Palestine, where we buy another largest customer. 
So you could prorate those. So I'd say five to 6,000 farms contribute to the core. We still buy some material from, from other sources where you don't have fair trade yet. But those that we brought about and massively support, they're in the five to 6,000 area. Well, what does a Dr. Bronner's allied farm look like? I mean, how do they operate? What principles do they operate by? Um, you mentioned compost operations earlier. What other practices are they are they implementing? Depends on whether it's a tree crop or a field crop. So mind you, that's by, by volume, most of our raw materials are from tree crops. So that's vastly coconut oil. Then there's palm and palm kernel. So those are tree crops. There's olive. So these three, I think, account for almost 90%. So there on tree crops, it's, this, is, this is a pretty interesting subject. Maybe not as for you and, and an American audience because that focuses more on field crops. But so what you do there is, is, is what I mentioned. You, you, you mulch, you prune, depending on what the tree is. Like on cocoa, that's definitely a very important aspect. Then you... You have to provide nutrients. Sometimes you would use compost or mulching would be good enough. And then you, you replant all trees. But the real interesting thing about tree crops is, and we came across that, oh, some five years ago, most of the fields are, are small monocultures, right? So farmers in developing countries, they've learned to plant in monocultures. It's more orderly. It's... It's relatively fast, right? You just draw a line, mark your the locations for the seedlings, put them in, and, and off you go. And then in between, you've got space for the cows to, to graze on. So people had gotten used to, to monocultures. They're small, you know, two acres, 15 acres, somewhere in that range. So they're not the 10,000-acre huge monocrops you have mm -hmm. in for oil palms, for instance, in Indonesia. So they're small and they're they're dotted. You've got other crops around. So I wouldn't call it massive monoculture. But we've in in cocoa that we became engaged with in Ghana because many of our farmers grew cocoa, but it was conventional. They sprayed it heavy. So there you start looking how can you convert those to organic, and that requires different things to get farmers off the pesticides what they were mostly using, and eventually. We came across this concept of mixed agroforestry. We call it dynamic agroforestry. There's different names for it. It's just simply a designed way to plant new orchards using mixes of trees that fit in their succession and their ecology. So in Ghana now, we do this with cocoa and oil palm. So you stake them out, they're planted on, on a grid. But in between, this is a nice thing. You, you include all kinds of other trees that fit. So there's fruit trees, there's avocados, and then you do annuals that grow first, grow really fast and produce early income. So cassava, turmeric, and ginger are really nice for that. In fact, cassava is fantastic. You, you get your first cassava crop when you replant new land. You get your first cassava crop in a year. So this is interesting to the farmer. You don't have to wait for five years until the first trees produce and they look like a really wild forest after a year or two a green jungle but they're very designed you know you leave alleys in between for harvesting for instance and for maintenance for mowing so this is the thing we we like most dynamic agroforestry is just a fantastic way of replanting but it's a little more labor intensive. You need to help farmers to finance the cost of the seedlings and the implementation because initially it's, it's also a little more maintenance. Later on, it isn't, but you have to get through the first few years. Short of that, you can plant cover crops, for instance, among oil palms, for instance. You put a, put a leguminous cover crop in there that keeps the wheat down. You mow it regularly. It brings in nitrogen but it also produces biomass. So this is something that you can do and you can intercrop in a small way, even under monocrops, depending on what the trees are and the demand for light of whatever you underplant. It varies. There's lots of room for imagination. 
So those are the things we would do with tree crops. And then on the field crops, that's India. Is, uh, this is Uttar Pradesh, east of Delhi, some 200 miles or so. Flatlands, small plots, no organic matter in the soil, completely burned out over the last 50 years of very intensive use of nitrogen fertilizers. And that you just cannot shift to organic unless you provide nutrients and soil fertility. If, if you ask farmers that dosed heavily on urea to just stop using it and call it organic, they will say yes. And then at night they will fertilize, right? Because you, you just cannot expect the yields. So there we had to do quite a bit more and shifted into massive production of thermophilic compost. With We got grants from, um, from a German development program to do that and had a great team on the ground, Farmer Sons, four of them, that knew what farmers needed and were hands-on enough to do that. They didn't just look at the business side. And that project in, in India, Pavitrament, we don't own, but are by far their biggest customer. And this is, if you ever get to see it, this, these are small plots, but the farmers grow three crops a year on a plot. A very dense rotation. And, and you can imagine it just consumes a lot of nutrients. And it, you can't do that unless you offer farmers subsidized compost in large quantities and help them identify cover crops to be grown, help them shift to conservation tillage. Because oftentimes they plow like crazy, three to eight times a year, really deep for weed control in part, but not very good for the soil. So that soil is, is crummy. It's more like uh, hydroponics almost, right? They have water still. And, and then you just add fertilizer and you have to get away from that. And that's been a real great experience to help that project with now over 2,000 farmers shift to organic into regenerative to produce not only mint for us, but also to grow uh, peanuts. We've just started developing for customers in, in Germany. There's, there's grains, there's millet, for instance, there's rice. So the trick is to find value-added markets for that. People who want organic and fair trade and regenerative, whatever it is, because you need to make sure that farmers overall benefit from going organic and rock. And that has to show up either in yields or in prices. And that, that's part of what we do in India, for instance, that we support that. We actually market for the project. We help market, find customers in the, in the West. Tulsi, they produce, holy basil. And that's, that's going pretty well. It grows really well. It's traditional. And you just have to make sure that you meet the quality that customers in Europe and in the United States demand. So that's, that's India for us. Really interesting project is to just shift uh, I'd say 8,000 acres of pretty boring lands with no organic matter in there to shift that gradually to something that has organic matter in it and is, is farmed in a pretty regenerative way, I'd say. Well, I think this is a good point for us to talk a little bit more about regenerative organic certification. It goes beyond organic as we know it, which is really about what you're not doing. Talk about how regenerative organic certification came to define the company's core mission and, and why it's important. It, it's just one of those things. It wasn't that strategic initially, but became. So Dave, David Brauner and the family, but David first and foremost, keep an eye on societal developments. And so around 2014, 15, the concept of regenerative agriculture hit mainstream in, in the U.S. Well, not quite mainstream, maybe, but it started coming up as, as a movement in agriculture, also related to grazing, for instance, very much, and field crops. And good friends from the natural food industry had their eyes on that. And David looked at it and thought, well, this is something that's Oh, the connection with climate change, right? Sequestration of carbon became a very, very strong point of the discussion. And we looked at this and thought, this sounds pretty good. We're, we're both skeptics, but this sounded like something that had so many benefits to it that it would be worth trying. And the nice thing was at the time, all of our projects had started doing some of this of regenerative different ways, whether it's tree or field crop. So we thought we'll just help promote this and this, this was a genius concept for us as a company in this case, even though we were making body care, but agricultural raw materials, mostly, or all of them, 
non-domestic, and it was a great way to link tropical agriculture to the concept of regenerative. And then there were other companies we partnered with. There was the Rodale Institute that had been very active in organic and picked up on that. Then Patagonia, for other reasons, became super interested in this as a, a movement and a way to save the world, so to speak. And quite a few other companies came on board. The connection to climate change was big. So we found ourselves really quickly in that space surrounded by other companies and practitioners who actually had started earlier. They were two projects producing meat in North Dakota and in Georgia that we partnered with. So this became a really wild scene of old ranchers that had gone regenerative and then younger, more excited companies that had just discovered a way to save the planet in agriculture. And we were there and had our own projects and something to try on the ground and already something to talk about. Then next thing was that David, he had seen label fraud and he knew if that term regenerative had no meaning and wasn't well-defined, you'd immediately see thousands of regenerative products and everybody would be making claims without any substantiation. And this is where that idea of a, of a standard came from. And, you know, the usual thing, a working group was formed involving Rodale and Patagonia and us and a bunch of other firms and lots of work. I was skeptical at first, but I, I was pleased that it went through. So there are by now several 10 producers are certified rock. And we use that for sure to promote the concept of regenerative agriculture. And we're also selling product. Right? So three of our projects already are rock certified. And the nice thing is you find now it's mostly food companies that are interested in this because they want to address the issues along their supply chain and at the least have a few of their ingredients become regenerative. That's the, I think that's the, the, the selling point. So it, in a way, this was great timing because it just brought a, an issue that most people are not very interested in, which is regenerating soil. It brought this to the forefront and we positioned ourselves really well in it. And so we make a lot of noise about regenerative now. And we can do that because we're practicing it too. So it's it's really nice and it's just very much in line with, with how we operate. Many other companies are shifting. Supplies are short. The list of materials is pretty limited still. Last year was disastrous for certifying any new operation because inspectors would do only remote inspections, right? That was a lot of fun, is to bring in new producers on, on board, but it's it's making progress. It's kind of fun. It's really fun to watch. And, and there's an appeal. And now I watch what happens in Germany. Initially, this was just created for the US market. And I now have people in Germany paying attention to regenerative. The term is used. There's the regenerative association in, in Germany we work with. So it's nice to see that this concept is appealing and, and more so than organic is. Organic has become something not very well defined that people want to buy, but they don't really know what it is. And so regenerative is, is top set with a little more substance, I would say. When I think of companies that are defined by social and environmental responsibility, I think of Dr. Bronner's, I think of Patagonia. Both companies are outliers, though. Both are privately owned, and that affords you a lot of freedom, freedom that public publicly traded companies don't have or won't accept. Do you think much about how the practices Dr. Bronner's has championed can be used in those more traditional companies? Do you see any encouraging signs that the Dr. Bronner's philosophy will be more widely adopted? I mean, can every, everybody do what you're doing if only they have the will? Or is it more complicated than that? It's Yeah, those are all the right questions, Ben. And I, I think the main point is really control of what you do. What, what we did is something that large public companies cannot do for two main reasons. Number one, their shareholders seem to still insist on shareholder value. And, and right. so and measured in rather conventional terms, and it makes it really difficult. I, I sure would not want to be the CEO of any public company, whatever they do, right? Because you just have to sell things you may not really care for. So that's number one. And then the other thing is large structures are married to complex supply chains. I, I know this cocoa is already a, a hot topic 
and it, it just exemplifies it, right? It's the trading structures that big companies rely upon. And if they try to differentiate themselves by being UT certified or use some other label, it just trickled down. And if you look at the supply chain, it's just full of corruption left and right. And it's oftentimes, it's not even the companies themselves, the ultimate buyers that are responsible for it, but their behavior in the market, looking for the best deal, just forces these structures. So it's really difficult for public companies to be as consistent. And then they wouldn't just let somebody like me just roam around, set up projects, driving their own cars and all these things. Those things are just frowned upon in big companies, right? They have all kinds of policies that would just get in the way of getting the work done. So there's structural difficulties too. What you see is that the subsidiaries of some public companies at least have become B Corps, right? It's that club of I forgot how many thousand medium-sized companies now that at least have themselves audited externally to show that they have strong, you know, social and ecological commitments. But big, large companies won't act and they can't because of the shareholder value constraint. They can't act until there's some real economic threat to their current way of doing business. Now, there's some hope in that respect. We have good friends in Germany who work in this field and apparently even big companies see increasing pressure to take a closer look at their supply chains and make them a little more resilient. Banks seem to be looking now at what they're financing and whether the supply chains show resilience. Doesn't necessarily mean they have to be organic, but resilience meaning where do you grow? What do you do to support farmers in increasing carbon content? And insurances, same thing. Now, this is a trend that's slowly increasing for large companies to look closer at their supply chains and make them more resilient. It's mostly for financial reasons, but of course you always get a nice story out of this. So their finances and marketing may marry. And to, to be honest, that, that's my only hope for large companies. They're just not made to do that. You may have CEOs and management teams who really want the best for the planet, but it's really not so easy to do given ownership structure and just the way large organizations work. They, they don't do what we do. We're small enough to be on the ground, get stuff done in a, in a collaborative way. And it's really hard for big ones. But I, I don't want to give up hope and hope that at some point, even big companies see the light and that there may be forces for them to consider externalities and support a shift to more um, regenerative practices. I, I'm optimistic and skeptical, but what you see at least, and that's nice, you even see Nestle talking in their sustainability reports about going carbon neutral by 20 whatever. And what are they doing? They're largely planting trees. And all you can hope is that those tree farms aren't just poorly designed monocrops, but that they look at biodiversity, for instance, and survival of the trees. And there's some criticism about this, but I think we're in the early years of this. So give it another five to 10. And my hope is that even bigger companies try to support things such as mixed agroforestry with the money they put into sucking in their CO2 emissions, so to speak. So there's a few trends I'm watching that uh, make me hopeful. Will I see any of this before I die? I, I'm not going to bet anything on it. But, you know, you just want to be hopeful. But I sure appreciate that small to medium-sized companies like ours, and we're not that small anymore. I think we hit 190 or 200 million last year, but that's tiny still. But anyways, companies like ours, that they can do this. And bigger companies have the resources too, but structurally have a hard time going down that road. But I, I'd say we're preparing the field, right, in, in a way. Yeah. I've just I've just seen there is huge potential to increase the output of smallholder agriculture without going the GMO and high nitrogen fertilization route. You can do this differently. It requires a lot of training, investment in the beginning, support to farmers for sure. And maybe that's something that people pick up on. Farmers who go down that road, they're satisfied from all I can tell. Initially, they complain about the extra work, but there's benefits. Say in India, the compost helps improve moisture holding capacity. And they water, they water it, heavily watered those, those fields during the dry season. And 
apparently with a higher carbon content, you get by on quite a few fewer irrigation runs per season than you do. And it's pretty obvious. The farmers report this. Now, that's pretty cool, not just because you save money. They don't pay anything for the water. It's more the resilience. So if that water isn't there or the groundwater table drops, which it's about to, you're just more resilient. So that resilience may come in as an argument for farmers as well. So I, I just see a few drivers, Ben, that what we're doing may appeal to farmers and possibly corporate buyers. No guarantee, but I'm pretty optimistic that there's plenty of opportunity to increase yields on smallholder farms by things other than GMO and just throwing agrochemicals on it. I'm curious, who did you who did you write this book for, and, and what did you hope to accomplish? Is this is this geared toward consumers, toward business leaders? What what was the impetus behind the book? Pure psychotherapy. <laughs> no, it, it's 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 mixed. I wasn't sure. No, initially I thought, oh, this is an interesting story. I should write about it. And then I conspired with Ryan Fletcher, our director of PR, and we thought this is a story that should be told because there's a bunch of audiences, of course. There's people who want to know what Dr. Browners is, right? There, there's some mystique about us. And nobody has ever written anything. So this was pretty good because I knew the family by then really well. It's history and it's, it, it's vision. And then there were consumers that may want to understand about agriculture more. And I, I tried to do that in a simple, non-technical way. And there were stories where I thought I should just talk about the fact that nothing's ever easy. And, and just give people a more realistic appreciation of, of development work, because that's, that's what it is. So it's a pretty broad audience, and I believe that's why Penguin liked the, the idea. Broad audience, it's not, it's not a business book at, at all. And I like it to be narrative, because I, I, I like reading fiction lately more than, more than technical books. And I, I thought it did this. And of course, it allowed me also to squeeze in a few pages about my own background growing up in, in Germany and not so unrepresentative of, of what my generation did. And, and same with David Browner's generation, people that think they can use businesses to, to save the world or to change it for the better. So I, I think it's, it's pretty broad. And so I had to keep it rather non-technical in writing. And I, it seems to be working out pretty well. I get mostly good feedback of people who like the story and just all the little interesting bits and pieces that are in there. What's the next stage of evolution for Dr. Bronner's? What kind of growth and not just financial are you hoping to see in the coming years? It We've been grown pretty consistently by 10 to 15% a year ever since I joined. That's, that's pretty unique to have that ongoing growth and that was carried by us going into mainstream retail. That, that's, that's the driver. So becoming familiar with mainstream audiences. So that kind of organic growth, I believe is going to continue. And at the same time, we're diversifying products. And we did this first by launching our own virgin coconut oil from Sri Lanka, because we had too much coconut oil. It was too good and too expensive to put in the soap. So we launched it really successful. And we have some plans to continue doing this. So there'll be more food items on the menu over time plus organic growth in, in body care. And I hope we're not growing too fast because our financing is done through bank loans. Right? So we have no outside investors and I hope they won't be any before I die or retire. It's, it's much more fun. This, this way you can make your own decisions. And that's, I think, where we're going. We're growing, we're adding staff, looking at buying a second facility down in, in Southern California to keep up with demand and just do that at the 10, 15% a year rate, maybe interrupted by pandemics that usually seems to speed up growth. And it sure did last year. So that's, that's what I see coming. And then the challenge is to maintain the family kind atmosphere in the company and, and the way we approach things. It, it doesn't get easier if you add more people. We're at 280 now. And if you get to a thousand, it will become more challenging. But fortunately, this doesn't happen overnight. And there's awareness of, of this. So we've tackled this. There, there's internal, there's coaching, 
programs and leadership and personal development. So just for people to be able to grow into uh, an ever-growing organization. So that's that's what I see coming the next 10, 15 years. And then as far as our quote projects go, we're, we're diversifying. It's really fun in, in Ghana to develop, to roll out the dynamic agroforestry, to diversify into cassava. So we're getting ready now to produce cassava flour, which is hot in the United States and in Europe. There's a few other crops that we can feed into. So it's the diversification of all these projects, essentially to exemplify regenerative agriculture and just make a lot of noise about it, while at the same time rolling out social programs that tackle some of the the local needs. In India, one example is menstruation is just a terrible taboo. And that's something we've tackled in our villages. And there's great solutions sometimes that require a few thousand dollars. And then training and and picking the right people to supply. So there is great potential to bring about social change attached to your commercial activities on the ground. And that I've learned, this is is the value of medium-sized companies. You can do that. You you can bring about change as part of business. And it's, it's not greenwashing or fair washing or whatever big companies usually do and put in their reports. It's, it's more about the action that I've really come to like. And I think that's going to stick around. Gero, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a lot of fun. There you have it. If you're interested in hearing more about the Dr. Bronner story, go check out Gero's book, Honor Thy Label, Dr. Bronner's Unconventional Journey to a Clean, Green, and Ethical Supply Chain. I also want to take a moment to fill you in on some of the things that are going on at Acres USA right now. For the rest of March, we're having a big book sale. We have hundreds of titles on just about every sustainable farming topic you could imagine. We're offering discounts of up to 30%. And for listeners of this show, you can get another 10% off by using the coupon code MARCHPOD. That's M-A-R-C-H-P-O-D. We also have a Book of the Week newsletter you can sign up for at AcresUSA.com. Acres USA is the premier North American publisher on production scale organic and sustainable farming. For over four decades, we've helped farmers, ranchers, and market gardeners grow food organically, sustainably, and without harmful toxic chemistry. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us at acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.